subject of today's message is the doctrine of the Trinity. And those of you who've been around Christianity long enough know that uh, to pack that one into one message is difficult enough. You know, I've already had the privilege of sort of getting to that rite of passage for all Christian dads when your child asks you the question, can you explain the Trinity, right? If you haven't gotten there yet, you will get there. Any thinking child, they're going to get to that point where they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Father is God, the Son is God. Explain that to me. Um, And they're not the only ones that are going to challenge you on that. If you're witnessing to someone, that's a hump they're going to have to get over. You're going to have people asking you those kind of questions. Neighbors, friends, uh, family, relatives, people you're witnessing to, people you're trying to disciple. You're going to have people that challenge you on it if you bump into an atheist. If you bump into a Muslim, that's, ex- that's right where they're going to go. If you have a, a conversation with, a, with someone that, you know, in Islam, that, they're going to go straight to the Trinity. When a Jehovah Witness knocks at your door and they try to tell you, we're the same, how do you explain? No, we're not the same. The Trinity is the, the first place you're going to go. Um, so you have Unitarians, and you have Oneness Pentecostals, and you have various offshoots of Christianity that claim to be Christian, but they've lost the doctrine of the Trinity somewhere along the way. And because they've lost the doctrine of the Trinity, they've lost it all. This is not one of those nitpicky, pet peeve doctrines that we just protect over time because we grew up learning that we're supposed to protect it. You remember that when we went through Titus? And we started our series this week on doctrine. That the louder and clearer scripture is on a subject, the louder and clearer a church has to be on that subject. We don't pick our favorite doctrines to be loud and clear on. We, we look at scripture, which are the things that, that scripture is loud and clear on. And then those are the things we need to protect. Those are the things we need to teach our kids And so if your child or a friend or a neighbor asks you, can you explain the Trinity? You should be able to explain it because it's the foundation of our faith. So first, a definition. What is the Trinity? Okay, trying to keep it nice and concise. All right. We worship one God. We worship one God. Someone comes to you and says, no, you guys are wrong because you worship three gods. No, we worship one God. But this one God is eternally existent in three persons. One God, eternally existent in three persons. Each of those words is important. If you lose one, it's messed up. We worship one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. They're eternally existent. One of them didn't come into being at some point. Each of those three has always been, always will be, and they are co-equal in power, in substance, in essence, in nature. They're not one of them's a little bit different in nature. They're all co-equal in perfection, in holiness. Always have been that way, always will be that way between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is a little, try to move a little bit quickly, okay? First, establish the first part of that, that we worship one God. That believing in the Trinity doesn't mean we believe in three gods. We wholeheartedly uh, affirm that we worship 
one God. That's monotheism, not tritheism. That would be three gods. We worship one God, and this is important ever since the beginning. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to put a couple of these up on the screen. But in Deuteronomy 6, this is the Shema. It's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, that one God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's emphasized in places like Isaiah uh, verse, uh, chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. It, this is clear throughout the Bible. The New Testament emphasizes this. Um, Paul makes this clear. There's one God. Uh, that there is no other God. And so it's a very clear affirmation. Uh, Romans 3, God is one. Uh, James 2, you remember James 2 when he says, you know, you believe that there's one God and you do well. But hey, the demons believe that and shudder. You need faith, right? And you need to apply that faith. But he's affirming you believe in one God and that's good. The demons believe that too because it's doctrinally true, right? Even the demons know what's up. There's one God. There's not three gods or four gods or two gods. There's one God. However, as Scripture kept getting written and added to by the prophets and then the apostles, and there's a progression in Revelation, understanding this one God that we worship is complex. This one God that we worship is nothing you can carve. This is why the second commandment, don't try to carve an image out of me. Don't try to make a picture of me and put it up in church and worship the picture. Don't, don't try to use some cute uh, painting or carving or sculpture to try to represent me because nothing can accurately represent me. I'm nothing like you've experienced, nothing like you can truly, fully comprehend. And one of the ways we understand that we can't fully comprehend them is that this one God is made up of three persons. This one God is made up of three persons. So I thought, man, I wrestled back and forth. Man, I was going to walk you through the whole book of John. Because John just, just hammers home the Trinity from beginning to end. It's all over the place. I was going to walk you through the Pauline epistles, Paul, all of Paul's letters, you know, and just hit the highlights. And I thought, you know what? Let's do a one-stop shop, okay? Let's, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference other verses, okay? But we're going to turn to one passage, and here's the bonus. We're going to turn to a passage where we're already familiar with. We were just there a few weeks ago. Okay? You might have walked in here looked at the bulletin. Wait a minute. Are we back in time? We would just finished Titus. I know. We're going back. Because there's one piece, a paragraph in Titus chapter 3 that lays out the Trinity and is going to be helpful for us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Titus. Those of you who have been here the past few weeks, you should already have those pages worn out. You know, dog-eared, you know, bookmarked or whatever. They should be easy to turn there. But the book of Titus, right after First and Second Timothy. And Titus chapter 3. So here's what those verses look like you'll remember we were there a few weeks ago he's just he just finished talking to, you know the, uh, writing about how we were all stuck we were all led astray we were ourselves foolish we were disobedient right we were lost how did that change god stepped in look at how god stepped in in verse four but when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Pause there. This God that we serve stepped into time to, try to, 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 to establish a plan of redemption. 
And this is established before the foundation of the world. Now, when you're reading through like the epistles and the gospels, when you see God, the word God there, it normally typically refers to the Father. Jesus taught us to pray to him as the Father. Jesus referred to him as the Father. He taught his disciples to refer to him as the Father. When you read through the the letters of the New Testament, it refers to God as the Father, the Father of lights, the Father of his children, okay? So that first person of the Godhead is referred to as the Father. This Father, it's his plan of redemption. He's the one that set up the plan. He's the one that instituted redemption, okay? He pushes redemption out toward the world and offers it. Uh, This Father is holy God, fully God. No one's going to really contest that one, okay? The the dudes that knock on your door, okay, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Oneness Pentecostals, none of them are arguing that the Father's not God, okay? But we're just going to establish step one that the first person of the Trinity, okay, he sets up redemption, and then it moves forward, it says, God set up this redemption, this plan of, but according to his mercy, according to his goodness and loving kindness, he saved us, verse 5. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Father, the Father is the one that sends the Spirit. He's the one that sends the Son, John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. So the Father sends the Son. And the Father sends the Holy Spirit for what? For regeneration, for renewal, okay? Um, The Holy Spirit, there's a couple things I want you to notice here. The Holy Spirit, in this passage, in this verse, you'll notice that it says, um, when it refers to the Holy Spirit, there's a couple of things that are attributed to the Holy Spirit that aren't attributed to the other members of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is responsible for regeneration. The Father pours out the Holy Spirit so that we can be regenerated. Without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be regenerated. This is something that the Holy Spirit does the Father doesn't do. This is something the Holy Spirit does that Jesus doesn't do. The Holy Spirit is responsible for uh, renewal and regeneration. Now, when John, uh, in chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples, I need to leave. I know you're sad. I know you're sad. I'm going to go to the cross, and then I'm going to send, and I'm going to leave you. But I have to leave you, because if I don't, the Holy Spirit won't come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He is going to convict. He is going to minister to you. He is going to give you power to be witnesses. Not it. He. The Holy Spirit is not like the force, right? He's not like an energy. The Holy Spirit is not a vibe, right? Oh, the Holy Spirit was here today. I was feeling so good. Mm. The Holy Spirit's not a feeling. Maybe the Holy Spirit was, was, was prompting something in you. That, that could be. But the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is not like, a, like an energy, uh, you know, like we say the Spirit of Christmas, you know, the Spirit of God, you know, like it's not a person. We just say it's a spirit. No, the Spirit of God is a person, Right? He actively gener- regenerates. Okay, another one to understand this. You remember in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, where Paul, Paul uh, encourages the Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How can you grieve an it? You can't grieve, I really grieved my car today. You know, I, I really, I was driving so fast and my car was sad. My car was offended, by the way, I drove. No, that doesn't make any sense. A person offended, the passenger sitting next to me, was grieved at how I drove. Possibly, I'm totally making this up. I drive perfectly. But, you know, I'm just making sure Danny knows that. But listen, 
You grieve a person. You don't grieve an it. Okay? You grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not some, you know, like helper that hangs out with a little elf hat and just runs around and does whatever Jesus tells him to do. No, he's God. He is God. And there are so many examples of this, guys. You think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 when they come and they lie about what they were giving. And Peter says, why? He tests them. What, is, it, is this everything? Yeah, yeah, it's everything. Oh, man, why did you just lie to the Holy Spirit? Then he rebukes them, and he comes full circle and says, you haven't lied to man, you've lied to God. Well, I thought you said he lied to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they, he lied to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. Okay, so when you look up verses and passages on the Holy Spirit, it is obvious that the Holy Spirit is not um, a thing. It's not a feeling, an energy or force or something like that. That The Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit does things. He regenerates on purpose. He is a person that regenerates you. He is a person that renews you. He is the person of the Trinity that is responsible for your transformation in Christ. It's amazing. And then he moves forward and he says, the Holy Spirit was poured out on us, verse 6, God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So then he moves to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, our Savior, and it is through Jesus Christ that we are justified, right? The Holy Spirit didn't justify us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. Jesus Christ justifies us. Why am I making a point about that? Because different members of the Trinity are responsible for different portions of this plan of redemption. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. And the problem with these supposed Christian offshoots that, hold to, that do not hold to the Trinity is that the Father died on the cross. The Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, eh, same thing. But it's not the same thing. They're responsible in different ways for our salvation. So Jesus provides justification. Jesus is equal with the Father. You remember John, as soon as he starts his gospel, all the other ones start with a birth narrative, right? And here was Herod, and then there was wise men, and then here was Mary, and then you got Joseph. John just goes theology on us. You know, John just says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So they're not the same person. They're distinct. And the Word was God. Now, when the Jehovah Witness knocks on your door and you, you turn in their Bible to it, they insert was a God. And they try to quote some kind of Greek grammar or something. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, They totally make it up. In-house rules. Okay, um, No Greek scholar recognizes that whatsoever. Anywhere. Secular, Christian ones, other religious ones. Nobody recognizes that. The Bible says in the Greek, in the English, in the Chinese, any language you get, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop down a couple verses. John reveals who that Word was. It was Jesus Christ. He didn't become God. In the beginning, from forever, Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. John revealing it right from the beginning that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. And that's probably been the most attacked doctrine of the Christian faith, that Jesus is God. 
Some people say Jesus didn't even claim he was God. Jesus didn't claim he was God. Christians just want him to claim that he was God. Interesting. Why did they want to pick up stones and stone him? Why did they want to throw him off a cliff? Why did they put him on a cross? Because he blasphemed according to them. And he blasphemed because when he said, I am. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush and God said, I am? I am. Remember when Abraham? I am. You know, it, it, he's equating himself with God. And that's why they were, oh, how, how can you possibly say that? And Jesus didn't go, hold on, time out. I didn't say that. He's like, yeah. Right? He is God. You remember at the end of the Gospel of John? See, this is why I almost walked us through John. I mean, it's, when Thomas was doubting, and then Jesus said, feel my, Jesus had already died, was put in the tomb, and rose again. He's appearing to his disciples, and Thomas is like, this is not, this can't be Jesus. No, I don't believe it. There's no way. And John, Jesus says, touch my scars. Here's my side. That's where the spear went in. Do you see? I'm the guy. I'm the same guy that was on the cross. I'm the same person that was in the tomb. And when, when, when Tom realizes this is true, I call him Tom. I just realized I... He's my old pal. When Tommy realized that he was true, that it was true that this happened, what was his response? His response wasn't, wow, Jesus, my friend, you're back. His response was, my Lord and my God. That was Thomas' response. Now, that was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to go, see, you still don't get it. No, Jesus said, you see and you were able to touch and feel and you believe. Blessed are those who aren't going to have the opportunity to touch me and feel me or see me, and they'll still believe what you just said. Those are Christians. That's us today. Believing in the deity of Christ without having the opportunity to actually touch those scars. And then John goes, time out, stops writing the gospel and puts like a, a, like a, a, a little insertion there. And he goes, guys, this is why I wrote the book. I wrote the book so you can have the same revelation that Thomas just had. So you can believe in Jesus Christ. Thomas just got it. Jesus is God. I mean, it took them forever, right? He's on the boat. He calms the wave. And I'm like, what kind of man is this? He calms the storms. And Jesus is like, remember the Old Testament passage? Only God controls the storms. Okay. Jesus is God. Jesus is co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. How else could he provide justification? If just a man died, how can he represent all of mankind? If just a man died, how can he take on an infinite punishment in a moment? He has to be an infinite person for that to work. Jesus has to be God for redemption to work. Otherwise, we wouldn't be justified. He had to be that perfect being. So, uh, this paragraph right here lays out redemption for so you've got the Father working, you've got the Holy Spirit working, you've got the Son working. And I do want to make this comment real quick. Even though in this paragraph it goes Father first and then the Holy Spirit is mentioned, then the Spirit is mentioned. Notice that logically the Son comes second, not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Father set up the plan of redemption. What does He do? He sends the Son. The Son does enacts the work of redemption. Then the Son and the Father together, John 16, send the Holy Spirit. So there's a chronological order. There's also a sort of hierarchy within the, whole, within the Trinity. And so it goes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit is less than the other two or that the Son is less than the Father. But there's a, a, a willing subordination. There's a logic to how they work together. 
Now, I want to probably the most um, common way to misunderstand the Trinity is called modalism. And I want to give this to you because when you talk with people, you're defending the Trinity or explaining the Trinity. When that child, your son, your daughter, or that neighbor or that coworker repeats it back to you, oh, so you mean this? And they say something like what I'm about to share with you, you need to go, no, not that. That's different. That is not the Trinity. And what they believe, modalists, they may not call themselves that or know that that's what they're talking about, is that there's one person who took three different forms. He took three modes. He's the father, and then he kind of changed his clothes and became Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Spirit. And he left, and then he kind of transformed into the Spirit, and then the Spirit came. It's one person, one God, just three different modes, three different manifestations. And back since the earliest uh, church controversies, that was deemed a heresy, because what we just looked at, three persons, one Godhead, right? Um, and so we know that because of things like Matthew chapter 3. You remember Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is getting baptized. And right when Jesus is getting baptized, the Father speaks out of heaven. So we're audibly hearing the Father in that moment, and we're visibly seeing the Holy Spirit come down in a dove, and then you got Jesus going into the water. Three persons in one simultaneous moment doing three different things can't be one person manifesting himself all at the same time, right? Then you go to the next chapter, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted, right? Who leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Holy Spirit does. It says it right in the, the first verse of that chapter. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and when he debates with Satan, they're debating about what the Father would do if Jesus threw himself down. He, the Father promised that he'll catch you. Well, the Bible also says don't tempt the Father. So who are they talking about if they're just talking about himself, right? So you see it repeated all over Scripture that um, Jesus and the Father, John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. Is he praying to himself? No, he's praying to the Father, right? So um, this, is, this is not one person kind of taking three different forms. And that's probably the most common thing that you'll need to correct when you explain the Trinity to people. Okay? And I'll get to this in a moment, but if you have like a cute analogy that you typically use, or when you grew up, you know, somebody took you aside and said, it's like this, and they gave you an analogy, that analogy is probably modalism, and you probably don't want to use it. Okay? We'll get to that in a second. I wanted to give you guys this as well. Okay? There is a logic to the Trinity. We don't just have to say, the Bible says it. It's totally, you know, ridiculous, but, you know, the Bible says it. So, well, the Bible does say it, and that's true, and that's all I need. That's all we should need. But there is a kind of logic to it. Augustine started this kind of concept that I'm going to share with you real quickly. And then it was picked up by uh, Richard of St. Victor, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis picked up on it. It goes like this. God is love, right? Love, by very definition, is other-centered. If God always existed and we were created, that means there was a time when God existed by himself and we weren't around yet. If he's love and love is other-directed, who's the other that is directed to if there's only one person? There has to be at least one other person within the Godhead for God to have eternally existed as a loving being because love needs an object, okay? If God had someone else to love and that someone else loved him perfectly as well and love is perfect, then it would only make sense if they were good that they would be willing to share that love with someone else. And so perfect love requires a perfect trinity, would we have come up with that without revelation of Scripture? Probably not. But Scripture revealed it to us, tells us God is love, or put our thinking caps on, and you, you know that actually makes sense for God to have eternally existed in three persons. 
Uh, now, to share with you explaining the Trinity, I know that uh, that is a tough deal, okay? I don't want you to say, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It doesn't make any sense. It's totally dumb, but just, you know, close your eyes and believe it. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, but you want to be careful how you unpack it because most of our analogies, I've actually not come across one analogy that actually works, okay? Based on what we just explained, you can see why some of these analogies don't fit, okay? Some people might say that God is like a clover, a three-leaf clover, okay? Three in one. Okay, that's kind of cute, especially in March, okay? But if you detach one of those leaves, can you say that that individual leaf is a three-leaf clover? No. See, when you look at Jesus, can you say, that's God? Or do you have to say, well, that's a part of God, that's a piece of God? No, you say he's fully God. We get this in Colossians. The fullness of deity dwelled in Jesus. Jesus isn't a piece. He's not a third of God. He's fully God. So the clover doesn't work because it's too compartmental. If you put the three pieces together, now you have God. No, God died on the cross. Okay? God regenerates you. Uh, God sent the sun into the world. You have things like uh, the egg. You know, you've got the yolk and you've got the shell and you've got the white and there's three parts. And see, it's one egg. Right, but there's things you can say about the yolk that you can't say about the shell. Which means they're not just distinct in function, they're distinct in nature that there's three different natures in those three different parts, and that doesn't work because you would have to say the Holy Spirit maybe is omniscient, but maybe the Father isn't. Or maybe the Father is omniscient, but the Son isn't. Or the, the Spirit is omnipresent, but the Father is not. No, all three of them share those perfections that are revealed to us in Scripture. Therefore, egg is actually teaching something different from what it says. You've heard water, you know, liquid, steam, uh, ice, well, that's almost good, except that it can't be those three at the same time. That's modalism. It's ice, temperature changes, it's liquid, temperature rises, it's steam, but never at the same time. No, at the same time, three persons exist in the Godhead, so ice doesn't work. You've heard of the analogy like, look, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, and I'm a husband, right? So that's kind of like how the Trinity is. No, that's nothing like what the Trinity is. That's one person with three different roles, and even though those three roles are happening at the same time, so we're a little bit better than the ice and the liquid, right? They're happening at the same time. It's still the one person that's filling those three roles, and that is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches there's three persons, each executing a different part of the redemption plan at the same time, but they're co-equal, right? So the analogies don't fit. The analogies don't work. So what do you do when a kid comes up to you and is like, Dad, Mom, explain the Trinity to me. And you're like, oh my goodness, Lucas just totally blew away all my best analogies. What am I supposed to do? Don't use one. An analogy can't, can't fit God. This is the very reason, as I explained earlier, that God said don't carve an image. It doesn't matter how advanced your tools are and how, you know, how awesome you're able to capture majesty in a sculpture. You can't capture me. I don't want to be represented. I don't want to see totem poles and images and, and, and carvings, even if they're of me. You can't capture it. So what do you do? You give them the definition. We worship one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here are the verses that make that clear. That's all. 
That's all. You point them to the verses that make that clear. Uh, clear as day. Why is the doctrine important? I'm going to close with this. The doctrine is important for many reasons. My goodness. I mean, creation wouldn't have happened without the Trinity. The Father speaks. The Son is the Word. Colossians tells us the Son is the one that created all things and holds all things together. So the Father spoke. Jesus is that Word that enacted creation. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. What's he doing? Taking a hike? Just walking? Was he bored? He's, he's preparing. He's, he's laying out what's going to happen. He's, he's making the way for creation to happen. So all three members of the Trinity are responsible for our existence. We wouldn't even be able to pray effectively without the Trinity. Our prayers go to the Father. Who intercedes for us? Jesus intercedes. Jesus made the way. He tore the curtain. And in Romans chapter 8, it says we don't even know how to pray. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us because we don't even know what we're doing when we pray. So if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, if it weren't for Jesus, we wouldn't be able to get any prayers to the Father. So those are just, there's numerous ways the Trinity counts, but you don't have to go further from Genesis, uh, Titus 3. Titus 3, where we just were. If the Trinity isn't true, if the Trinity isn't real, then redemption doesn't happen. Because Jesus died on the cross, who's sending him? Right? Who's in heaven holding down deity while Jesus is dying on a cross as a man? Right? Who applies justification to us? Who convicted you? The first sermon you ever heard or the first time you heard the gospel and you go, man, that wasn't making sense to me before, but now suddenly I get it and I want to repent. The Holy Spirit did that. Without the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't happen. That's why Jesus said, I have to ascend so the Holy Spirit can come and do his work. We need the Holy Spirit's part in redemption. So when you hear people talking about Trinity... When we sing about when we sing songs about the Trinity, right? When you get to passages that are emphasizing aspects of the reality of the doctrine of the Trinity, our response shouldn't be like, oh, what is this kind of a boring sort of stuffy doctrine, whatever. This is crucial to the Christian faith. If you have a coworker that tells you, Oh, I'm Jehovah's Witness, we're the same. No. You don't believe Jesus is God. We're not the same. Okay? The Trinity matters. The Trinity is important to our faith. We don't have to wrap our minds around the mysterious aspects of it, but we have to come to grips with the basic definition of what it is to be able to explain it to our kids, explain it to people around us, and not just go, I don't know, we're just weird. We have, that's a weird thing. You got me there, but let's talk about another topic. No, unpack it. Explain it to them. The Trinity is crucial for us because without the Trinity, we wouldn't have the gospel. If any part of that definition I gave you isn't true, the gospel disappears and we're all fools sitting here. We're all fools. But the Trinity is true. Jesus proved it in his death and resurrection.